Hello, everybody. Hello. Welcome back to the New York Mystery Machine. Tammany Hall. But for ghosts. But for ghosts. It's been a crazy couple weeks. Yes, it has. Um, we haven't been together in a minute. Nope. I was away. Then you were away. I was away. And uh, you, you at home or on the train, wherever you're listening to, right? You wouldn't know. You wouldn't, wouldn't know. Wouldn't know. Wouldn't know that. We've been giving you new episodes keep every it up. week. We keep it up. We, we, we're, we're, we, it's for you. It's for the people. Do it all for you, Mulder. Um, it's a great X Files episode, by the way. Anyway, it's fine. You know, when we, you know, we have a lot of cool things ha- happening here. Um, in the next few weeks, we're going to be launching our our very first Patreon. Woo! Um, and one of those one of those Patreon levels would just be like Christina quoting the X Files. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you get your personal Christina audio clip every every week to set your to set your week straight with a with a with a Mulderism. Thirteen year old Christina used to sit online and uh, look up X Files scripts and then just read them out loud. So happy to happy to recreate that. That checks out. So make sure you uh you stay tuned to that. We'll, we'll, we'll be we'll be um we'll be uh throwing that into the universe in the next couple of weeks. Also, listen through the ads today. We have a new sponsor, so uh, make sure you check that out as as you listen through the old ads, some fun stuff. A really cool, a really cool sponsor of the show, so really excited to get into that. And um, as always, if you haven't yet, be sure to follow us on the social medias at NY Mystery Machine, at NY Mysteries on the Twitter, NY Mystery Machine on Instagram and Facebook. Um, we're building up a lot more folks and followers there. So thank you for everyone who's following. Um, and you know, these last two weeks of, of, of the podcast have been pretty insane. Sun and Sam part one is our most streamed, uh, in one week ever. That's amazing. Uh, in our first, you know, seven, that was our seventh episode. So out of the first seven episodes, um, that was the most streamed, uh, per week episode. And, and all of our, all of our episodes are being, are being listened to still. So thank you for yeah. our new listeners. Welcome. Welcome. If you're new to the show, love to have you here. Go back and listen to the others. And uh, today we're, we're, um, we're taking a break from murder. Maybe. Um, and, uh, Christina, what, what do we have on the docket today? Well, today we have a West Point story, not the great 1950s musical. Oh, And this is the case of Richard Colvin Cox, a West Point cadet who disappeared in January 1950 and has never been found. So that makes him the only cadet to disappear from West Point permanently and without resolution, which is something. Wow. It also is an interesting case because of its context. So it's the height of the Cold War. It takes place, maybe not at the moment of, eh, a little bit around the moment of, but certainly involves the, um, the... origins of the CIA. At the end of the day, this case remains unsolved. And there are so many clues and sightings and what have you that um, it's actually, for me, feeling impossible to completely tell the tale. So I highly recommend the book uh, Oblivion, the Mystery of West Point Cadet Richard Cox by Henry J. Mayhofer. Mayhofer? M-A-I-H-A-F-E-R. Very good book. And in terms of, of, of situating us, West Point, New York is how far out from New York City? Is it it's Hudson Valley-ish? Yeah. I always say Hudson Valley-ish, like it's a larger, like like New Yorkers say upstate when they mean like, you know. Like Nassau County's the island? Yeah. I mean, it is the island. But no, no, I mean like when New York is like, I'm going upstate and like you don't really mean upstate. You just said upstate because you think everything that's not New York City is upstate. Well, everything that isn't New York City is upstate. Sorry, guys. Well, yeah, but uh, West Point is about two hours from New York City. It's okay. uh, to situate you further. It's uh, what's nearest it? Cold Spring. Okay. Um, it's not far from 
Uh, where else? What else? What else? Newburgh is maybe another this hour away. This is another segment you get on the Patreon. It's Adam and Christina geography <laughs> everything. It's like if you if you want to go everyone. to West Point, you can pat. They have an Arby's on the way. <laughs> so that's where West Point is, guys. Great. Um, so who is Richard Colvin Cox? Richard Colvin Cox uh, was born July twenty fifth, nineteen twenty eight, in Mansfield, Ohio, into a rather average family. His father, Rupert, died when he was young, and his mother, Minnie, was a Christian scientist who raised her brood of six children on her own. Uh, In high school, he was a class treasurer, class president, student council, intramural sports, editor of the yearbook, national honor society. Like, he did all the things. All the things. He's a golden student, um, very popular young man. Good for Richard. Yeah. And after high school, Cox enlists in the Army. He receives basic training at Fort Knox in 1946 and was soon after assigned to Germany. Uh, there, he was a member of the constabulary units in Coburg and Schweinfurt uh, and was eventually promoted to so- sergeant. And for those who don't know, because I don't know, the constabulary units manned border posts and ran patrols along the, the, the border. So this is a moment, you know, where, again, Cold War, uh, you know, Germany is West Germany and East Germany, and so that idea of a border um, is, is really important for context. Um, and it's worth noting that being on the East German slash Soviet border, there was a, a lot of um, what the book describes as lawlessness. So what the book says was a lawless atmosphere with dealings on the black market, plus incidents of assault, theft, rape, and even murder. Some of the crimes went unreported. Others resulted in army court martials or courts martial rather. Um, so just sort of keep that in the back of your head that this is the the space that young Cox is um, a part of. And it's important in part because there's this all-American picture of Cox, and then there's also a couple of discrepancies with that. So some people say that he did trade cigarettes in the black market, but that was, you know, that was it. So keep an eye out. There will be little points like that. Eventually, Cox secures a very competitive spot in West Point, uh, and he attends the preparatory school first in 48, and then by July of that same year, he enters the academy proper. He also is going to be married. He's, he's engaged to be married to his high school sweetheart, Betty Timmons. Um, and he, they're going to get married as soon as he finishes West Point. So it's, it's, it's you know, all roses and great. Everything's coming up roses. Everything's coming up roses. And by all accounts, Cox was very well adjusted. His letters home, you know, evidence that he's maybe not loving the academy, uh, but that's kind of common with recruits because it's a really grueling system physically and mentally and emotionally, you know, year round. So it's not surprising that he's going to express sort of like, I don't know, maybe I made the wrong decision. Maybe I should leave. But there was no real intent to leave. Sure. It's my favorite sound. Also on the Patreon, you'll get a whole playlist of sounds of Christina turning pages. My favorite sounds in the world. (laughs) Really dramatically. Um, So, like I said, there are some potential discrepancies around character. Right now we're just talking about character and life before before it happens. Before the, um so again, some say that he couldn't hold his liquor at all. Some say that he could absolutely knock back a few drinks. Um some say that he was a gambler, you know, socially. Some say absolutely not. They never saw him gamble in his life. Um so that's, you know, again, sort of these question marks. There are also a couple of things that you should know about West Point and just the military at this moment in time. So 
for example, there is the honor code at West Point, which is, quote, a cadet will not lie, cheat, steal, or tolerate those who do. And so that seems obvious and easy enough. But the honor code and infractions against it are pervasive in so many ways that something like lying about the time that you reported back to barracks from an evening off campus counts as a violation. Store that info. This is also an era wherein being queer at all is a taboo. Uh-oh. Right? So even though there's no explicit barring of LGBTQ military personnel until 1982, um, homosexual activity was criminalized and grounds for discharge. In the 40s, it was classified as a mental illness that would result in disqualification from service. You know, in 1993, for instance, it's when we had the don't ask, don't tell policy. And it's only until... Uh, or rather it's not until 2011 that being an out member of the lesbian, gay, or bisexual community was permissible. And it was only in 2021, our present year, that the trans ban is left. So like, this is, this is a you know extremely conservative atmosphere. And this is important because there is a lot of speculation that Richard Colvin Cox may have been gay or bi. And it drove me nuts at first that in reading this book as to like, why are we, why, why, where does this come in? I don't really understand. But eventually it you know and we'll talk about it it may be that this is something that is used against him by whoever makes him disappear Mm. so oh boy that's the uh that's a little bit about richard colvin cox sure now for the disappearance or the lead up to the disappearance because some weird stuff happens in the two in the week or so prior how long has he been at west point prior to his disappearance he enters in july of 1948 sure and we are now in January 1950. So okay. a year and a half. A year and a half. So one week before Cox disappeared, uh, on January 7th, 1950, a man who identifies himself as George phoned the North Barracks where Cox lived at 4.45 p.m. The phone was answered by the cadet on duty and the caller asked if a Dick Cox was in the company. And the answer was yes. So the caller said to tell him to come meet at the hotel because there is this hotel there on the edge of campus. Sure. He said to say that it was George calling and that they knew each other in Germany. Um, 540 rolls around on January 7th and the visitor arrives at Grand Hall, which is where the cadets meet their guests and again asks for Cox. The cadet on duty calls Cox on the telephone and would later recall that George seemed to be a little under six feet tall, about 185 pounds, fair hair, fair complexion, belted trench coat, no hat. And a few minutes later, Cox arrives. According to Maresca, the cadet on duty, Cox and the visitor shook hands, and they seemed, quote, they seemed glad to see each other. After a few minutes, they walked to the coat rack, and while Cox was putting on his coat, the visitor kidded Cox about how he looked in his uniform. Cox proceeded to sign out for DP, which are dinner privileges, at 5.30 and returned at about 7. Now, this is interesting because it means they actually probably didn't go to dine at the fair because it would have taken immense speed to get over there, eat, and get back within that period of time. In any event, Cox returns, showers, starts to study in his room. He quickly falls asleep and his two roommates, you know, photograph him sleeping and that's one of the, that is the last photo of Cox we have. And at 10.30, tattoo sounds, which happens every night, but Cox jolts awake and runs out of the hallway shouting for something that sounded like Alice. So he runs into the hallway shouting for Alice. And his roommate, one of his roommates, Welch, asked who the hell was Alice, and Cox just didn't respond and instead went to his room and back to sleep. In the morning, on the way to chapel, Cox said a little bit more about this visitor. And this is from uh, a 1952 Life magazine article about 
the whole case. And it said that the roommates remember him saying something like this. This guy I saw last night was in my outfit in Germany. He'd been a ranger before that. We weren't close friends, kind of a morbid guy, too. He had a few drinks last night. He wouldn't let me get out of the car till I had some, too. And he was boasting how, he, how during the fighting as a ranger, he had slashed and emasculated some of the Germans he killed. He'd also lived with a girl in Germany, got her pregnant, and then hanged her. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. He, 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 he hanged her? He hanged her. Like he took rope, made it into a noose, and, and, he, and he, he... That kind of hanging. I don't know the specifics, but uh, yes. That... Wow. Just casually remarks this on the way to chapel in the morning to his roommates. So his roommates actually never follow up on that. They don't ask... Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. What? Was, did, yeah, yeah, cool, cool, what, what, about, what, about, what about this girlfriend? Did he get was he executed? Did anyone never, never followed up. I went asked why they never followed up. The roommate said that Cox didn't like to answer questions. He wasn't keen to open up about personal matters and was rather reserved. That's so strange. I didn't want to talk about personal matters like murder, like that's, murder, that's like murder. <laughs> that that this person that visited him last night apparently murdered someone. It's just so odd. Uh, yeah, Urschel, the other roommate, uh, says. In an interview, quote, you have to understand my relationship with Dick Cox. Dick was not the type of guy you questioned. Never asked him for help on a problem. He was older than I was, and although we were roommates, we were not what you would call close friends. He never went around with my friends. I never went around with his. Don't get me wrong. He was a good roommate, and we never had any problems. As for his visitor, I do remember Dick saying the man was a friend of his from Germany. A real, quote, weirdo. Again, murdered someone, apparently. Yeah. By by hanging. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and yet that afternoon after chapel, Cox goes out on another dinner privilege with this George. And although he said that he was going to be back around 2.30 to complete something for an English class he was taking, he didn't return until 4.30. Um, and he was very apparently irritated that it took so long. Fine. Weirdo friend shows up, says that I, you know, I murdered someone. Remember that time I murdered someone in Germany and leaves. Great. But night of January 14th, 1950, it's Saturday again, and it's exactly one week since George first turned up. That day, Cox and Welsh had watched the Army versus Rutgers game and were on their way to the barracks when George appeared again. It was about 5 p.m., and Cox said he was going to go check his grades and left his roommate on the way in. So cadet grades are posted every week. Another cadet would later say he saw Cox talking to a man whom we are presuming is George. There are some differences between the two descriptions of George, between the one from the cadet on duty who had seen him the previous time and the one who sees him now, but it's assumed that there's enough overlap that it's probably the fault of memory or lighting or what have you. Not a son of Sam situation. Not where, a son of Sam situation. Where no one looks alike. All the son, sons of George. Uh, no, yeah. <laughs> where no one looks alike. They look pretty darn close. They're dressed the same. Yeah. It's like, you know. Uh, so Cox returns to his dorm about 20 minutes later, announces to Welsh that he was going to have dinner with George, which, according to Welsh, Cox didn't seem apprehensive, just sort of disgusted about the situation. Um, and Welsh seemed to think that it was just an excuse for Cox to get to go eat at the hotel. In fact, there was even a... Um, the roommate even said that earlier in the day, Cox had suggested they both sneak off campus to go have a night in the town, uh, but had decided against it when, you know, the whole thing. But like, you know, they... When George was like, oh, by the way, I murdered my girlfriend. <laughs> I hated that girl. So I hung her. <clears throat> um, mm. 
which also sort of makes sense because earlier that day, Cox had suggested that they might sneak off campus that night, but they decided against it. So anyway, Cox says he'll be back around 9, 9.30. And that was it, because we never saw him again. He signs out for dinner privileges, and he's gone. And, and no trace in at all. No trace at all. His absence is officially noted at 1.30 a.m. It's reported at 2. And since cadets are humans and sometimes they do sneak off campus and come back late or out, you know, stay over there, what they said was going to be the time they were back, no one wanted to, like, really raise the alarm and, like, get him in trouble if that wasn't necessary. So he was properly reported missing through all the chains of hierarchy on Sunday morning. And immediately... The uh, New York State Police, the CID, everyone becomes involved. There's a 13-state alarm that goes out. And within days, there's a public announcement asking for information. Where did he go? Where did he, so where where did he, he go? Where did he go? So I figure what we'll do now, since that's those are the events of the night in question. Yeah. I figure we'll go over a bit of what was left behind, like what evidence is there physically, um, what the early investigators did um, in sure. terms of their search. Uh, and then we'll talk about some possible sightings. Love it. So, in terms of what was left behind, Cox left about $87 in cash and checks, watch, rings, and civilian clothes. Now, this makes them think that he was probably going to return back. Like, that was yeah, the intention. Yeah, no, I was about to say, like, there's no plan of him right. leaving. And if there are any military aficionados out there, it's important that his civilian clothes are there because he had just come back from a holiday break, right? So he still had his civilian clothes with him. Civilian clothes have to be stored away and like locked up, but his hadn't been there yet. They were going to be put there on Monday or something. So they were still available, but he didn't take them. So right, he's clearly coming back. He's not going to get far looking like a West Point cadet. Yeah, it's okay. Um, with no money. Uh, he also uh, had a desk calendar, and on it, January 15th was circled, so the next morning, which is interesting, but the reason why has never been figured out. Some suggested it was to buy basketball tickets, but his roommate said, no, we, that's not what this is about. We don't know what it's about, but it's not that. They searched all of West Point. They took helicopters, they combed on foot for clues for a body, they drained Delafield Pond and dredged Lusk Reservoir, and they even searched the banks of the Hudson. Nobody, no clothes, no, no evidence that anybody's there. And so now they're thinking, okay, well, if he's dead, perhaps his body would have just eventually, you know, floated down river and into the ocean. Well, it's so crazy that they went death like first, like real. Like- well, at this point, they're not. I'm sort of in- okay. interjecting that. They're 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 on the hunt for him. He's got to be out there. But they they did. Just, I think it's probably just standard protocol to like, well, just in case, we should dredge all these places. And um, Other weird things that sort of they, they fixate on. Um, so a few weeks before his disappearance, Cox had written a letter to a girl in Germany. It was returned, address unknown, which is how we know the contents of the letter. It was written on December 11th, addressed to Fräulein Rosemary Vogel uh, of Lichtenfels am Main. West Germany, and in it, Cox wrote uh, that he was going through some old pictures that day, and he saw pictures of uh, them together and this other person they knew, and he asked if he, you know, she remembered him. It was very pleasant. He does ask some questions uh, towards the end about what's the Russian situation in Lichtenfels in the vicinity, 
and you know he's taking Russian so maybe that's perfectly innocuous but they they try very hard to find Rosemary and see if she knows anything about this to my knowledge I don't have to I don't think they ever really this doesn't pan out but this becomes a big fixture of like you know oh who's Rosemary who's Rosemary so that's really it in terms of like physical evidence there's like no physical evidence nobody sees him leave nobody sees with George nobody and is George a missing person as well or are you gonna get to that later well here's the thing who is George oh we just have his word for it that he's George you know I was a friend in West Germany I wear trench coats and no hat that's all we got so in terms of two missing people he doesn't really qualify as a missing person because in their in their eyes he's nobody he's, he's more the he's person more of sus- interest yeah, yeah he's more suspect than they want to know who george is because he's ostensibly the last person the last person to see the to the, see this human being mm-hmm. in general mm-hmm. and he never pops up again george define pops up again all right hit, he doesn't show up on campus no, they never definitively say ah so whatever happens george yeah so whatever happens that night those two human beings never enter West Point ever again. Right. Never seen, never spotted. All right. But there are some sightings of Cox. Um, so during the course of the investigation, you know, this is normal, right? There are people always, there's always a crank call. that's like, oh, I saw so-and-so and it doesn't pan out. That's not what happened. But there were a few that were kind of um, interesting enough to follow up. So, for example, one uh, CID informant was able to pick Cox's photograph out of a suite of photographs and said that he had seen him in um, New York City about four times between the winter of 1950 and early 51 in a couple of gay bars in the area. Oh. And so the FBI put enough stock in this, because, again, this is a known informant, um, to actually... they. They assigned a couple of agents and took Cox's roommates up to New York to do the scene and visit all the the gay bars and nightclubs to see if they could find Cox to no avail. So perhaps the most interesting and most credible sighting of Cox, though, was made by Ernest Shotwell in 1952. So for the record, this is two years that people are still looking for him fairly actively. What's the family situation? Devastated. They... uh, pretty much to the end, firmly maintained that he must, you know, at a certain, you know, they held out hope that he was alive, of course. But at a certain point, they felt pretty sure that he has to be dead because there's no way he was going to go so long and live this whole other life and never let them know and let them just agonize over this missing yeah. brother. He's he's the beloved brother. He's the apple of his mother's eye. Like, he has a fiancé. You know, there's all of this sort of like why, how he would he would never be able to just up and leave and not let us know he's okay. In theory. In theory. Um, so now we're in 1952. Ernest Shotwell had been a friend of Cox when they were at the West Point Prep School together back in what, like 40, early 48. Sure. Um, and they knew each other well. They weren't close friends, but they knew each other well. And Shotwell said that in 1952, around February or March, he saw and spoke to Cox for about five minutes in the Greyhound Bus Depot post-restaurant, Washington, D.C. Here's what Shotwell says. I went over to speak to him and called him by name. He appeared startled and not overly joyful at seeing a friend. At the time, he said, I resigned from the academy last year and I'm going to work in Germany. 
When I talked to him, he appeared to be in a hurry and left the restaurant through the street entrance. Mm. His personal appearance was not in keeping with the West Point cadet, and he was clothed light for the weather. I've not seen him since 1952 or know of his present whereabouts. So we feel pretty confident about this identification because Shotwell is also an army man who uh, was a good friend of, of Cox back in the day. So it seems like you would be able to identify him positively. And in fact, Cox in this scenario responds positively and doesn't you know, deny, oh, I'm, I'm not Cox. Who are you talking about? You know? and, and, and he has no reason to, to, to BS us that he saw this human being. Right. And so one question that investigators had was also, you know, well, you didn't you know he was missing? Mm. And essentially, yes, the, you know, this had been on, you know, front page news for a while. But when he went over and said, you know, what's going on? Cox was very clear that he left the academy, mm. right? So, all right, he's not going to report at that point because Cox said he's out of the army. It's all resolved. Sure. There's also a really weird event in 1955 that eventually the author of the book sort of discredits, and I bet it's probably nothing, but it's too fucking weird not to mention. Well, hit us up. So 1955, November 3rd, uh, in a town about 50 miles northwest of you know, northwestern Arizona. Northwestern Arizona. It's of something in Arizona. November 3rd, 1950. <laughs> November 3rd, 1955, in a town northwest Arizona, Mary Polay went to open her shop. She arrived at her usual time and saw something inside the door on the floor. It turns out that it's a small white envelope smudged with bloodstains. It said, very important, must get to this place, Police West Point Military Academy. She opens the envelope and reads a handwritten note inside. About Richard C. Cox, parentheses, Dick, third class U.S. Military Academy. It has been over five years, but I know where he is, but it will cost a life to find him. Life. You see, he is my husband. If you know what a red dove means, you won't under any way try to contact me. Please, he needs help, so do I badly. The note was signed Alice Lorraine, and underneath it said Alles kaputt, which in German is all is lost. On one side, there was the phrase Betty forgive him. Remember his... His, his fiance. Yep. And at the bottom is an unfinished sentence. If one would know I am writing my life would not be worth... And then on the back of the envelope, another bit of writing. I am wearing silver bracelet. Have wore for many years. And there's this like whole diagram of the bracelet. The writer of this letter was never determined. It's sort of just sort of... Hit me again with location. And Arizona. So across the country. Mm -hmm. And it ends up under the, under the door of who? Random shop owner. She call, she she turns it in. It's just so. I mean, it's handwriting just, wasn't identified as you know being hers or anyone. Yeah, I mean, it's just so bizarre. It's so bizarre. So the running theory is like, okay, somebody had a lot of fun, but it's so weird that I couldn't so, not mention it. <laughs> yes, and like someone had a lot of fun, but it's so specific for a place that's not in New York. Like, right. for someone to be in Arizona and to how many years later at this point now? Uh, we're also at five at, years. Five years later. Make this. I don't know. It's a not to not to say there's any validity in it. It's just a weird. If someone was doing that for any other reason, as opposed to it being the actual truth, 
I just don't hear any logic in it, like yeah, at all. That's the thing. Like, why Arizona? Why if you're if you're want to pull a prank on someone and like you know throw a curveball or confuse people or whatever, why not send it to West Point? Yeah. Why not that, send it yeah. to Minnie Cox, his mother in Mansfield, Ohio? Why? Yeah. Why aren't you not? Yeah. Why send it to Betty not? Timmons. It was really strange. It's, 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 right? I mean, it's also strange why this woman gets it in her like door. Like I, all these things are very strange. Exactly. I mean, there are some details here, like Alice, like he went out of the room yelling Alice. That was reported in the 1952 Life magazine article. So there are some things here that the person could have just gleaned, from, but it's it's it is fucking weird. Yeah, it's bizarre. Um, so much for that early investigation bit around sightings and that sort of thing. I want to pause here and turn to George for a minute. This guy, George. Let's talk about George. Sure. George had said a couple of things that gave investigators some possible clues as to who he was. He indicated that he had driven up to West Point, so presumably he's from somewhere south of West Point, and that he might be staying, as a result, at a local overnight hotel or motel or whatever, right? Because he visited Cox two times that first weekend, on the 7th and on the 8th. And he's not sleeping over West Point. That's he's not, not sleeping yeah, over. That's no. not happening. He's not at the hotel fair that's on campus, so it would have to be somewhere else in the area. So they start scouring all the local hotels and motels to no avail. Um, In the course of questioning Cox's friends and acquaintances, both from the academy and from his time in Germany, one person suggested that the age and appearance of George might fit with that of a man named David Myron Westervelt, who had served with Cox in Germany. So the investigators talk to Westervelt, and he says that, yes, he and Cox had both been the sixth constabulary in Germany, uh, but after that, he never saw Cox again and didn't even know he was at West Point until he saw the article about his disappearance. As for the night of January 14th, Westervelt said he was at a wheelchair basketball game in Teaneck, New Jersey with his wife, aunt, and uncle. He even had a program to prove he was there. And upon further questioning, it became clear that he and his wife were supposed to have dinner with his aunt and uncle before the game, but for whatever reason, not really sure, don't remember, that never ended up happening. So they met up at 7.30, went to the game, and went to a diner after. Everyone sort of says, all right, I guess that scans, and lets it be. But clearly, this is foreshadowing something. Yeah. So anyway, by 1957, over 200 people have given statements and Richard Colvin Cox is declared legally dead. Oh, wow. So I'd love to pause with the story of, of the investigation there and discuss some possible some possibilities. What do you think's going on so far? Suicide? Murder? New life? Oh, my gosh. I don't know. There's so many. Like, I, 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 I don't believe. Let's take a break. Okay. And then All right. I'll come back with some thoughts I have initially. And yeah, I will will, will check in on that. We'll be right back. So you listen to our podcast, which means you must love mysteries. But how would you like to solve your very own mystery? Hunt a Killer is an immersive murder mystery game told over the course of six episode boxes. Each box is filled with different clues and physical items such as autopsy reports, witness statements, and more. You'll use these clues to solve an ongoing murder mystery. Work solo or as a team of sleuths to finally crack the case and reveal the murderer. So do you think you have what it takes to hunt a killer? 
If so, head to www.huntakiller.com and use the code NYMYSTERYMACHINE for 20% off the first box. That's www.huntakiller.com and the code is NYMYSTERYMACHINE. Sign up now and begin the hunt. Bow, bow, bow. All right, we're back. Um, and last we spoke, you asked me, you know, my some of my theories about what's happening. Yes. All right. Um, my, my initial gut is that this human being is started a new life. Okay. Um, I don't know. I just I I don't um. Goosh! I just don't know um, if if something foul. I, I there's nice single drop of evidence bloodshed fight anything there's no mm-hmm. dna anywhere like there's nothing yeah. showing that this person is deceased but i know many people go missing and then we just assume they're they're just dead yeah um so my initial reaction is that this person doesn't want to be seen and that's definitely something that is is investigated right sure. so um that life uh, magazine article also has this really extensive list of like all the things that people tend to do when they try to start a new life they tend yeah. to like change their name to something similar maybe the same initials they use their mother's maiden name they you know they if they are from the northeast they go southwest or you know the furthest place they can so there's definitely patterns that people can follow um if they're they want to track them down yeah. uh, but mostly i want to point out how difficult it is to fake your own death i think howard grace fabricated his own death you know how difficult it is to fake your own death only one man has pulled it off. Elvis. That's a Mulder quote for you. Oh, thanks. <clears throat> All right, so possibly Who's a Mulder? new... I'm just kidding. Oh, my God, Adam. <laughs> Not funny. <sighs> Smolder and Molly. So the, the biggest problem with that theory is that it's notoriously hard to do. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, I, I think that when people are... Yes, yes, when people are like, I fake my death... Start a new life. Cool. Do you know what you really need in life? A social security number. <laughs> it's how you get most things in life. Like, unless, you know, you yeah. you have resources. Right. Which right. he left some, most of his resources that we thought he had behind. Right. So then, yeah, I guess my, my next brain does go to, to, to some foul play. Foul play. Okay. So the- I don't trust George. <laughs> no, nobody should trust George. Yeah. Murder is very high on people's minds um again the problem being where is the body a lot of folks speculate that oh well it could have been in the river and then washed downstream but even then unless it was like crazy way down it should have surfaced at some point um and then there's the the suicide angle um and possible motivations too much pressure to conform to the academy or to his family's expectations pressure of impending marriage perhaps something to do with you know Something to do with George, for all we know. I think I rule out that suicide more quick than anything else. I think it's really hard to dispose of yourself when you commit suicide. Well, that's it, right? <laughs> it's it's very difficult to um, hide your own body. Yeah. <laughs> unless unless we're having a situation where, like, George isn't cahoots to, to hide this. It's an assisted suicide situation, right. which I don't think that is. I, I rule the suicide out because yeah. at one point, no, no one committing suicide can be so clever enough 
And also, if you're committing suicide, you're doing it for people to know you committed suicide. No one kills himself. I really don't think people kill themselves um, hoping that no one knows Realizes. that it happens. So, but erroneous to that last statement, my first statement of like a clean suicide where no one finds you, bullshit. Right. So probably not that either. But that's sort of where the investigation stops for a while. We have these sort of three Schrodinger cats floating in the air, and that's that's all we got for a very long time until a man named Marshall Jacobs, a retired history teacher, gets involved. So Marshall Jacobs was born October 1926. He's, you know, a peer of Cox. Uh, he had served in the Navy during World War II, and he played for the Lenoir Red Sox um, after afterwards uh, but due to an injury he had to give up his emerging baseball career and instead he attends university marries and eventually teaches history and social studies for over three decades in dade county florida when he retired he decided to take on a research project that had been sort of at the back of his brain since uh roughly 1950 which is the disappearance of richard colvin cox so marshall jacobs is a force to be reckoned with and i'll say that marshall jacobs research is that which is recounted in that book I mentioned earlier, Oblivion. Um, He requests information from everybody, the FBI, the CID, the CIA, you name it, under the Freedom of Information Act. Uh, Admittedly, hundreds of the pages that were released to him were missing or were censored. Um, And once when he asked the FBI, you know, when certain missing pages might be declassified, the answer he got was, not in your lifetime. Jeez. About this case, this one cadet. This one cadet. Like, and that's his thing, too. It's like, that's kind of what... A lot of this redacted is weird. stuff just for someone Why are there missing? 165 pages from one file we're missing? Like, that's for a missing cadet? Ooh. They were like, oh, you know, it's to protect people's privacy. I was like, it's been how many years? Oh, this has got saucy. All right. He cold-called people with the right names who lived in vaguely the right places from his their last known, you know addresses um so we could re-interview them and follow up like this guy is thorough even does archival research at west point found fbi agents who worked the case you name it um so it's it's really extensive we don't have episode space to go over everything he does and all the crazy shit that pops up um so i'm going to share a few vignettes that seem key to jacob's reconstruction of what may have happened okay So while re-interviewing one of the witnesses from the initial investigation, a friend of Cox named Bud Groner, Groner says that Westervelt is key to the case. And this surprised Jacobs because in all the case files, Westervelt was sort of like a footnote. They easily cleared him early on. He was at the basketball game, end of story. But Groner says that everything about George, from being a bragger to swaggering to the way he dressed, all of it fits with being Westervelt. He says, quote, personally, I always thought Westervelt may have been trying to recruit Cox for some government agency like the CIA, unquote. And he added he thought that perhaps some of the FBI's investigation had been suppressed by the CIA because Westervelt worked for them. So that's that's his friend's theory. Okay. When going through the FBI files again, Jacob finds another possibly valid Cox sighting, one that doesn't show up in any of the you know, reports about the case um, to the public. On May 16th, 1960, uh, a known FBI informant was in Melbourne, Florida at the Show Bar Tavern, and he was waiting to meet someone. He strikes up a conversation 
with a lovely woman a few bar stools down learns her name was Allie and Allie said she was meeting her date and another man when these two arrived the informant introduced himself and one of the men said his name was Walsh and the other said his name was R.C. Mansfield Allie would refer to him as Richard in conversation okay Mansfield the informant and Allie had a great chat and Mansfield teased the informant about being in the Marines and not the Army. And the informant said, well, why don't you go back into it if you like the Army so much? Which I imagine he said in that tone of voice, like, well, if you love the Army so much, why don't you marry it? Yeah, that's pretty that's, much how I'm hearing this. That's happened. And Mansfield said he couldn't. He added almost under his breath that the Army and his mother thought he was a dead man. He'd been considered dead for more than eight years. Huh. The informant figured at this point that this guy must be wanted. And because he's actively working a case for the FBI anyway, he says, you know, to himself, great. I'm just going to pay a little closer attention now to yeah, this Mansfield guy. Something's up. This is weird. Interesting, yeah. So they have a few more drinks. And Mansfield eventually confesses his name isn't Mansfield. Do you want to guess what his name is? I bet it's Cox. It's Cox. It's Cox. At some point, he says, you know, my name's actually Richard Cox. And... And he doesn't know he's talking to an FBI informant. No, this is just some guy at the bar who Which was is just chatting up. Some some dumb fucking luck. Yeah, 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 yeah. That a whole organization looking for him. There's a member of it at the bar randomly. Just randomly there. All right. I also want to point out that, like, in terms of choosing his name, Mansfield. I mean, that's where he was born, Mansfield, Ohio. So it fits that pattern that we yeah. mentioned Initials, earlier too. Hometown. Yeah. Like, if um, I changed my name, it'd be something Williamsburg. Right. Or something Williams. Right. Or Burt Williams. Burt Williams. That'd be a good That'd be very good. Me. Be very good. If I ever go disappearing for Burt. I'm going to look for Burt Williams. Burt Williams. Why Burt Williams? Williams Burt, Williamsburg. Boom. Except the problem being you now need a new name because yeah, we yeah, all know. Well, I'm not going to miss that. Um, so... During this conversation, at some point, Cox mentions Fidel Castro, adding that Castro's time and power was limited uh, and that per the book that I read, you know, the quote was, the Cuban people will be getting rid of him soon. And Cox asked the informant whether he knew certain people, sort of shady characters in the area, and the informant agreed to introduce him and did so. And that was the last time that the informant was able to get a hold of Cox. The FBI wanted him to, like, follow up and find yeah, Cox again. Let's keep this going. But after he introduced Cox to the people that he asked to be introduced to. And the informant was on a different case, right? Like A different case. Yeah, just Completely different. Randomly stumble into this human being. Now, the reason that this sighting seems legit is that, again, one, the informant is a trusted informant with the FBI actively working a case, right? Why are you going to concoct this weird story? And risking your job. Risking your job. And also, like, years after the fact, we're in 1960. Yeah. Um, so, you know, this was once pretty big news, but it hasn't been big news yeah, in years. there's no reason to, to bull. Plus, there are these small details, right? Like, being dead and mentioning service in Germany in a top outfit, i.e. something like the constabulary. And all that added up, again, Mansfield. Plus, if we go with the theory that Cox was somehow CIA, the comment about Castro also makes sense timing-wise. The CIA had some disastrous assassination attempts on Castro. Like some of them are like Looney Tunes disastrous. Um, and the statement that Castro wouldn't be around very long was made about 11 months before the disastrous Bay of Pigs. Oh, so if Cox is doing something wherein he might have this kind of information, you know, perhaps this is alluding to an upcoming op. 
Fascinating. That, you know, that last bit's clearly a lot of conjecture happening, but again. Yeah, it's weird that he wants to like meet with nefarious people. Like right. you leave you leave the army to end up doing other weird shit. Like you didn't want a normal life, clearly. You didn't want to like right. you know, hang out with goats and make bread. <laughs> right. No dairy farms. Yeah. So another interesting thing that Jacobs uncovers. Um is he he decides to talk to a former CIA agent himself just to see, like, does any of this make any sense to you? Yeah. And so he contacts Frank Sturgis. Yes, I know what you're all thinking, that Frank Sturgis of uh, the, the Watergate break-in. And uh, Jacobs interviews him and suggests, you know, perhaps George, you know, what, what do you think is going on? And, and Sturgis suggests that perhaps George had set up Cox to be kidnapped by the Soviets. That was his theory based on everything that Jacobs had uncovered. Um, Sturgis said that Germany at the time Cox had served there was a hotbed of activity. He said it was like a war being fought between the intelligence services. He didn't seem to think that Westervelt would be recruiting for the CIA because at the time the CIA was working with professors at universities to recruit. Um, But... He thought that perhaps Westervelt was, or George, or assuming George and Westervelt are maybe the same person, that this George may have been on contract for the CIA at times. Um, and so perhaps also maybe working for the Soviets and others. George just seems a little suspicious of everybody. Yeah. Um, he also sort of suggested that perhaps what happened is George said something too much when they were drinking that first night, something Cox shouldn't have known, or maybe Cox said something, and it was arranged for Cox to be captured by the Russians. Now, there was a file, at first I was like, this is crazy, but there was a file from the CIA that Jacobs had received through the Freedom of Information Act. It was dated May 24th, 1957, approved for release January 25th, 1983. And it details that there was an American prisoner in Vorkuta prison camp, Russia, who fit the description of Richard Colvin Cox. Okay. So apparently it's not so far-fetched. Vorkuta had 200 to 300 camps in the area. Apparently there were American prisoners there over the years from World War I, World War II, Korea, um, and one of the released prisoners, a man named John Noble, said that he knew one Forkuta prisoner who was abducted while an American J.I. on guard duty near the East German border. So the idea of abducting someone for this apparently is a thing. Furthermore, at the time of Cox's disappearance, a Polish ship known as the Battery uh, was known as a spy ship, and it brought Russian agents between the U.S. and Europe and was in New York Harbor on the 17th of January and left the 20th. So Sturgis suggests that perhaps, you know, George uses something to, to, to coax Cox to, to leave unwillingly, you know, but sort of like blackmailing him. Perhaps something to do with Cox's sexuality, since that's such a taboo at this time. Mm. But if he ends up in a Forkuta prison camp, how does he end up in Melbourne, Florida in 1960? Yeah. Unresolved. Jacobs comes to see that Westervelt is a really crucial individual in this investigation he sort of keeps popping up in weird ways either directly or indirectly so jacobs dives in a little bit further as to who this guy is it seems that westervelt when he was first interviewed after cox disappeared um agreed to take a polygraph test and that polygraph test which yes not in, admissible in court we know but that polygraph test was inconclusive because of quote certain mannerisms westervelt had been trained as a polygraph operator. 
So presumably you can use, know what certain mannerisms would cause an inconclusive result. Furthermore, the files indicate that the two cadets who had seen George picked out Westervelt from a line and were like, that's the same type of guy, but they didn't want to commit that, oh, absolutely, this is George. Other things sort of of interest, Westervelt's wife was named Alicia, so similar to Alice. And some who knew Westervelt and Cox in Germany recalled that Cox had briefly worked under Westervelt when he was doing some intelligence work, and Westervelt intimidated Cox, and they didn't understand why Cox put up with it. So perhaps with this history, Westervelt, as George, was able to pressure Cox into leaving campus. Jacobs decides to follow up with Westervelt, but unfortunately, he died in 1969. So instead, he follows up with Westervelt's second wife, not Alicia, and asks her about Westervelt. Jacob directly asked whether Westervelt was CIA, but all the widow would say after a very long pause was, draw your own conclusions. He had also been in Guatemala for a time, which was where apparently CIA, you know, possibly trained um, uh, Cuban exiles who wanted to overthrow Castro. So again, that comes back to this idea that perhaps there's that connection to Cox in Melbourne in 1960 when he makes that weird Castro comment. He also decides, Jacobs also decides, I should say, to follow up on Westervelt's death. It seems that he died at Mount Sinai in New York City, 1969. So he calls and was very charming to the clerk and claims to be an old army buddy. And the clerk said, no, records show that Westervelt was treated in 1981. And, you know, Jacob said, well, you know, Westervelt's not a common name, but you sure it's the same guy? And the clerk said, well, I'm talking about David M. Westervelt, who was born on April 15th, 1926, which is the same birth date and the same name. So he pushes further and like well that's weird you're on the one hand he's officially dead 1969 but the same guy with the same birth date is getting treated in 81 and eventually mount sinai sends a letter and says oh no no no, it was a clerical error your westervelt definitely died in in 69 but jacob sort of plays with the idea that what if someone borrowed his identity in 1981 to get Mm. treatment could that be cox could that be connected so at this point, here's what we got of Jacob's running theory, as he, as he understands it. In January 1950, Cox was feeling pressure, pressure to stay in a career he wasn't really thrilled with, pressure to live up to certain family expectations, pressures of being a good cadet, pressures of marrying his high school sweetheart, even if he's wrestling with his own sexuality. And David Westervelt, possibly under the name of George, arrives at West Point on January 7th and says, let's go to dinner. And because Westervelt, something I didn't mention, lives only an hour away in Dumont, He doesn't need to stay in a local hotel to be able to come back the next day. So Cox signs out and goes, you know, for dinner privileges, but instead they just drink in Westervelt's car. Cox said his visitor made him drink, which would make sense with the idea of Westervelt intimidating or bullying Cox. When Westervelt arrives a week later, he invites Cox out again. So we know that they didn't go to the Thayer Hotel. Remember, the time discrepancy doesn't make much sense. Yeah. And if they didn't go to the Thayer Hotel, even though he'd signed out with dinner privileges, and Cox didn't go to supper formation with the rest of the cadets, that means he committed an honor violation. Now, at some point in the investigation, it becomes clear that the sign-out log, when examined, had been tampered with in terms of the time of Cox's return, essentially to make it seem like he'd been back in time. Sure. 
And so, so someone was just kind of like covering tracks, covering you his know, tracks, not thinking that he's wouldn't right not show up ever again, right? Or it might be Cox himself because this is the week before when oh, word, George word, word. first comes. But when Westervelt arrives a week later, again this time unexpectedly, invites Cox out again. Perhaps the previous week Cox had told him all of his anxieties about everything, and now Westervelt was coming as a contractor for the CIA with a solution. Perhaps Westervelt suggests going off campus. He gets Cox drunk, which now means that there's another honor violation happening around going off campus. And Cox is starting to feel like the mounting pressure of, oh, no, these are two honor violations. Everything's going wrong. And Westervelt says, don't worry about it. I've got an idea. Why don't you come work for this great new intelligence agency called the CIA? And perhaps as a desperate move, Cox agrees and they go back to Cox's or they go back to Westerville's area of New Jersey. This would allow Westerville to get home in time for that basketball game. And in terms of the remaining credible sightings, you know, Cox encountering Shotwell at that Greyhound you yeah. know, depot in 52. That falls in line. That falls in line. Perhaps he'd finished like a training program and was now going overseas. Makes sense to be in D.C. for that, you know. And also all, the, all these things all these case files being redacted. I mean, if he's CIA, then yeah. Yeah, that's going to be redacted. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so the other sort of really credible sighting in Melbourne, Florida, where he's like, oh, Castro's not going to last, also sort of lines up. But that's as far as Jacobs could get in turn. Until. There's one more until. Oh, boy. Marshall Jacobs spotted a former CIA agent interview in a newspaper. The retired senior CIA official named Walter Robinson uh, was with the CIA very early on and per the article seemed to be fairly critical of the intelligence sector. So Jacob says to himself, what if I just cold call him and say, hey, I'm investigating this weird thing. And he does. And Robinson eventually agrees to, you know, to meet and hear more. And they do. And he says, sure, I'll, I'll follow up with some contacts, see if there's anything else. And it was sort of like a brush off. But to Jacob's surprise, eight months later, Robinson rings him and says they should meet up. And when they do, Robinson said, you have to promise my identity is going to be anonymous. Spoiler, Robinson's apparently not his name. And then added, well, I found your man. According to a contact Robinson had, what happened was this. Cox ended up working in Europe after he disappeared, mostly Germany in the intelligence field. Who the employer was, Robinson wouldn't name. Cox was tasked with, quote, getting people out from behind the Iron Curtain, particularly members of the scientific community, both Russians and those captured by Russians. These people were particularly important to Russia's nuclear projects at the time. It seems that Cox's role may have itself been sort of unclear about the legality of it, uh, which is why perhaps... Uh, his activities for the agency were being covered up in every possible way, right? Sure. At this point, Robinson sort of made a sort of a side and said, the more you dive into it, these activities, the more you know what he, Cox, knows, the more it puts you in a particular situation, which Jacobs was like, not a threat. Robinson went on that since that time, Cox has been living out west near Kellogg in northern Idaho. At the time of their discussion, Robinson said Cox was at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, a federal facility, not a regular hospital, with terminal cancer. Jacobs asked if he could meet Cox, and Robinson responded, no, Marshall. He knows about you and knows about the publicity you've stirred up. Uh Uh-oh. 
But, and this is definite, you are not to try contacting him. Besides, Cox was on his deathbed, and Jacob seems to have completely accepted that. And that's it. Jacobs felt that his it was closed, case closed, all done. Um, he did wonder if you know Robinson was offering this information to sort of shut him up because he didn't want Jacobs running around and going further trying to find yeah. this person that the government doesn't want anybody to know is still alive. But that's and that's that. That's that. And what do you what do you think? What's your gut telling you? You know, I've been going back and forth. It's such a it's such a weird. There's a part of me that thinks this is all bullshit mm. and that he's dead. Yeah. But there's a part of me that's like, well, this guy doesn't seem like a a crack. And the guy who wrote the book for him is a retired uh, military guy. He's got a master's in journalism. So he's not... I imagine he has some credibility of like, I'm not going to put my name to something that's poorly researched sure. maybe I I think he might be out there I think he's both dead and might be out there oh there it is and what's the name of the book again if people want it is Oblivion the mystery of West Point cadet Richard Cox well there you have it if you guys have any sort of theory you know what to do you head on over to our social media at NY Mystery Machine on Instagram and Facebook and at NY Mysteries on the Twitter uh, and you can leave us it there or you can head on over to the iTunes drop us a five star rating and a review um, at the end of each month we, we pick out a winner for a, a small prize that's coming on up in the next week because we're, we're, we're rapidly getting to the end of the month um, but let us know your thoughts let us know your theories start and- asking you know relevant about any shady you know ex-military characters that showed up and didn't really have much of a backstory or spent a lot of time in Germany and then in Kellogg and there you have that uh, well Christina this was the doozy it was a doozy coming off of our, our double episode on Son of Sam really diving into this, this went all over New York went all over the world yeah this got this got a little international a little international a little FBI a little CIA well next week's a big episode it's number one zero <laughs> it's the tenor that's so loud. I'm sorry. I'll do it further away. Ready for? Ah! So loud. All right, folks. Well, thanks for 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 joining us today. We'll be back next week. I am Adam Mace. I'm Christina Marinelli. And we will see you soon.